Welcome to another episode of the Finance and Property Survival Guide. My name is Damien. I'm a 24-year-old from Newcastle, Australia. When I finished high school, I felt like a lot of my education left out the most important things that I needed going forward. Stuff like getting a mortgage, budgeting for big purchases and investing were never talked about or explained in any great detail. I want the Survival Guide to serve as a middleman for anyone looking to learn about finance and property. Each week, I'll endeavor to speak to and learn from some of those within the industry to help break down the details of the finance and property sector. Today on the show, I was joined by Peter White. Peter White is from the FBAA, which is the Finance Broking Association of Australia. But Peter White has done much more of uh, much more than that in his life. I was really, really honored and appreciative of Peter giving so much of his time to the show. Um, it was a great episode. It was a really good conversation that I thoroughly enjoyed, and I hope you do too. Peter has done a lot in his 43 years in finance, and he's one of the good guys. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I hope you learn as much as I did out of the conversation. And if anybody you know might like this this uh, this episode, I would really appreciate it if you shared it around to any of your friends. And if there's anybody that you would like to hear on this show, interviewed by me, I would love for you to email me at damien at moneysaverhomeloans.com.au. Enjoy the show. So today on the Finance and Property Survival Guide, Peter White, Managing Director of the FBAA, uh, is joining me. How are you, Peter? Good, thanks, Damien. Yourself? Yeah, not too bad. I actually wanted to, the first thing off the bat before we get into the conversation, there's an AM at the end of your name. Can you explain what that is? Because I, I, I think it's an Australia medal, but if it's not, I don't want to be wrong. But I think it is, right? Uh, close. So um, I was very honoured honored in uh, 2019 to be given an Order of Australia by the Queen. Um, and the, the AM stands for, um, uh, it's a, a member of the Order of Australia is its correct term with the post nominal AM. And there's four rankings um, of Orders of Australia. So you see a lot of people with OAM and they are uh, generally sports people. That's the, uh, that's the first run on the ladder. I'll be careful how I phrase that. That's the first run on the ladder. Uh, so that's for service to industry as such or service to sport. And AM is the next one above and there's probably um, one-tenth of the amount of people get an AM um, and that's for significant service to industry and also to the community. And, uh, and then above that's an OC and AC, which uh, only one or two people a year achieve those. And it's generally politicians or people who have saved people's lives and things like that. That's um, awesome. So, yeah, so it's a, it's a part of, a lot of people say it was work I did through the Royal Commission. It actually wasn't, it goes back before that because the due diligence process goes back many years when uh, the Order of Australia uh, folk actually do the review on this. Um, so it, it had a bit of that, but you know, I chair an international federation that I established. I, um, I have my own charity for parents and carers of special needs kids. So there's a whole host of things that mix into it. Um, it's not just about, um, it's certainly not what I do as a job. That's not why you get Orders of Australia. Um, okay. It's got nothing to do. That's what you do above and beyond that, if I can put it that way. Okay. No, no, that's all right. Um, I guess we'll just quickly stay on that. Is there, what's the process like for that? Do they come, Do they send you an email? Is there a letter you get in the, in the mail and says, we want to give you this award? Like, how does it work? Yeah, so um, in the initial instance, I knew nothing about it. Someone has to nominate you. Um, right. And then I think it's six people have to back it. 
um, <clears throat> with not just like a reference, but it's an extensive uh, a dossier that's got to be put together. So I, I knew nothing about this until it was all done. The first thing I knew was I got an email from the uh, Secretary to the uh, Order of Australia saying, you've been nominated. And then they say, uh, given you've been nominated, if you are successful, will you accept it? I feel like saying, God damn it, who wouldn't accept it? Um, yeah, silly question, <laughs> I guess. They could have, yeah, they, 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 they put that there. And some people don't. Uh, Kevin Rudd knocked one back uh, a few times through his role as, a, as Prime Minister of Australia. Uh, and he knocked it back mainly because he, he believed I was doing my job. I wasn't going beyond and above my job. There, yeah, no, sorry. Um, and, uh, and then you get a follow-up, after you accept that, you get a follow-up email that sort of says, uh, and I think it's about a month later, congratulations, you're, you're getting it. Um, it's all confidential, you can't say anything about it. And uh, um, it'll go public on the uh, Queen's birthday. And then from then on, you can talk about it and they publish it and so on. And then there is a, uh, a ceremony that goes down at, um, at Government House. So they do that on a state basis because they do everybody at the same time. So all the AMs, uh, sorry, all the OAMs, the AMs, uh, and any ACs and OCs that may be there. So uh, at Government House here in Brisbane, uh, they held a, a big service there, and uh, a little ceremony, I should say. And uh, you awarded your medal and pins and certificates that come in a big, uh, big binder sort of thing, all uh, very nicely uh, presented. And uh, you're there on public record for life, I guess. It's pretty cool. Your, your yeah, name's immortalised in a different way. Yeah, it is. It's something I never expected. And, uh, um, yeah, it, it is. It's a great, great privilege. Um, you give sort of 43 years of your life to an industry and you mm. do a whole lot of things on that journey. And uh, it's, uh, it's more than just a little nice. For sure. Well, yeah, like the mentality behind that's interesting too. You never... I do, like if you've been doing something for 43 years and it's your life's passion, you don't want, you don't do it expecting the praise. You want to do it because it's the thing you're passionate about, but getting yeah. that, that magnitude of praise would feel good. You know, you're doing something yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, it certainly does. Um, and uh, yeah, you sort of, I think many of us feel that at times what we do is a bit of a thankless journey. Um, mm. It certainly does in association world. There's, there's plenty of cynics and criticisms, yet there's not a lot of people that want to get out and make a difference as such. So um, you sort of, you do put yourself out there and uh, when something like this happens, and because it's so unexpected, like I said, you're completely, <clears throat> completely unaware of what's going on. Um, it, uh, it really does take you by surprise. And it is, a, it sounds a little cliche, but it is really an enormous honor and a privilege it's, uh, to think that um, I guess if nothing else, there are people out there that, that see you in this light um, mm -hmm. and then a, uh, an authority, uh, because this is all run by the, the Queen out of, out of England and it comes down through the, the Australian Governor-General and then the Queensland Governor and so on. Uh, you know, that you've got people at that level that have looked at what you've done and sort of gone, yeah, this, this meets the, the criteria, this is... In this instance, where I got significant service, and that's not what you set out to do. It's a passion, it's a journey that you're on, um, and for me, it's it's just a path I've been following. Okay, well, that's that's one big part of, I guess, an intro. But I let's, I, I guess, we'll start there. Is can you give the listeners a brief intro of like who Peter White is and what you do within the industry, or as much as you want to include? Because I've I've looked at your bio. You've done a lot. You've done a lot of work. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Uh, yeah, so. 
Look, this is my 43rd year of being in banking and finance, and, and over that period of time, I've worked in major banks, retail banks, I've been in investment banking, private banking, I had a private banking suite in the uh, around the 2000 era, and that was good fun. Um, and uh, uh, of course, then I got into non-banking and banking alternatives. So I had a couple of my own brokerages, um, I was CEO of mortgage management companies, and there was one I was a manager of at the day that seems pretty small in these days, terms that we had $860 million portfolio, basically in, in SME lending, and um, as a mortgage manager, uh, not as an aggregator, because aggregators were still very new in those days. Um, and those days, it was enormous size book. But today you sit back and go, yeah, that's pretty small. Um, <laughs> but in context of the type, um, so fair house. So we, uh, I did that in the uh, mortgage management space. And then uh, they said the broking. And I got into the association world back in 2003, uh, mainly because I wanted to give back to an industry that I'd made plenty of money from at, at the time. Um, not everything works. I mean, it's, it's like any journey. Some things fail, some things succeed. Um, but um, it was my foray into wanting to do something a bit more. And then that took me on a journey I completely didn't expect, which sort of leads me to where I am today. But along that pathway, I, I started off as New South Wales State Manager for the FBAA. I became uh, what they call Vice President of the Association. I took over as National President of the Association and Chairman of the Board and CEO. And, Today they call it MD. It's all the same sort of box and dice since about 2008, I guess. Right. So I've been around the association. But I also, <clears throat> along that path, I, I, I was driven to do a couple of other things. So I set up an international federation uh, between myself and Canada were the ones. I, I was doing some research in 2016, or 2015, I should say. Um, <clears throat> I was doing some research around the world looking at uh, what became Report 516 from ASIC on broker remuneration. And I was doing comparisons all around the world. Right. And uh, I found a whole lot of like-minded associations that wanted to come together. So we um, formed, or Canon and I formed this thing called the uh, IMBF, the International Mortgage Brokers Federation, which we meet on a monthly basis. And what we do is we're, we're looking at uh, largely what's happening in marketplaces and regulatory environments, because we know, and, and it's the same overseas as it is here, our government or our regulators, when they look to shape any form of regulation or legislation, they actually look overseas, for example, and they say, well, what did the UK do with this? Or what did they do with the right. USA or whatever, Canada, whatever it is. Uh, we get compared to Canada a lot. Um, and then they form regulation over here off the back of that. So I took the view, if I want to be in front of the game, if I want to get in front of the politicians and the regulators in their thinking, I've got to know what's going on overseas. So that was principally the foundation as to why the IMBF was founded, the Federation. It, um, it enables all to have that conversation and learn from each other. So it's a two-way learning. Um, it does a lot more than that. And we're actually going to, um, here's a little scoop for you. We're planning, once we can travel, an international mortgage brokers conference. And right. we're going to take the top 20 uh, brokers or 10 to 20 brokers from every country that's represented in the Federation, meet together in one country, and we're going to look to build a white paper on the issues within industries in each country and globally, and then write that paper and put it back to each country's government. So they'll see their country's issues first, and then they'll have a global perspective, and then every other country's issues. So they'll, they'll see the entire picture. So uh, once we could travel, uh, we've been planning this since just before COVID hit, unfortunately. Obviously, right. that shut that down. 
but uh, we'll be having the world's first and only uh, conference of such size uh, to bring out some great deliverables because it's all well and good for people like myself to sit back and sort of go, well, we believe this, that and the other. Although I've been in the industry a long time and I'm closely connected to industry, but it's only one perspective and the real answers um, actually genesis from the people at the front line. They may not have the answer, but it's a thing that creates that boiling pot of, of knowledge and thoughts that then takes you on a, a, a thought journey that says, okay, well, here's how we solve this if this is the problem, the real problem faced right. at the front end. So, um, yeah, so we okay. did the Federation and I said, keep going. And um, I, uh, my wife uh, has two kids from past marriages and, um, and I became a stepfather to a special needs uh, stepdaughter. And um, we found a whole lot of issues there. And because I'm also a, a, a federal government lobbyist in my own right, um, I took on uh, government in regards to some issues I saw with special needs kids and it wound up being... Um, uh, falling under state jurisdiction so we took on Queensland State and uh, we won and so we set up uh, a foundation called the Sanity Space Foundation which is a, a ACNC registered charity that um, looks after the, the um, mental health for parents and carers of special needs kids we do a bit of corporate fundraising from time to time so that we can help the parents out but it's all focused on the parents not the kids and that because the kids get lots of help through various initiatives. That's where the main focus is. Yeah. People forget about the mental health of the parents that are involved because right. they have a 24 seven job that is relentless. And mm -hmm. I've seen the, the strain and stresses with mental health. So my wife uh, doesn't now, but used to suffer from depression, still goes through some tough places, but most parents suffer with some form of mental health issue. Uh, uh, so we built the foundation there to be a support group as such. And of course, whilst we're doing that, the other journey happened, which was in 2016, I took on being the uh, awareness ambassador for our industry in finance breaking uh, for uh, mental health awareness because it was a taboo subject. And uh, I had dear mates of mine who were struggling with depression um, at, at a corporate level in this industry. People, you know, I'm not gonna name names, but you'd be surprised at people that struggle with mental health. Myself, I was going through severe anxiety attacks. I, I can remember in the last federal election not being able to get out of a lounge chair here because I was that knotted up with anxieties. I did eventually, but um, you know, it, it, it hits us all. And then we found brokers that were having their accreditations put into question you know, uh, by lenders saying, well, uh, I hear you've been put into hospital because of depression. Well, we, we might have to cancel your accreditation. I said, whoa, that has to stop. That shit's not on. Yeah. yeah. So we then took on, well, I then took on that ambassadorship to make sure that mental health, health, um, and the challenges and issues were were spoken about in conversation. And so today, so five going on six years later, that is a commonplace conversation, and that's something that that I started, as I said back then in 2016, when it was a taboo conversation. To now, it's very commonly spoken about. Many people are uh, on board talking about that conversation and it happens every year throughout the industry. And I'm really, really, that's one thing I'm really, really proud of that uh, mm. hopefully is, 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 if nothing else, a legacy that I leave behind when I move on, um, that we are, and we do continue to talk about the challenges of mental health within our sector and look after one another. Well, there's, um, there's something- There's a snapshot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that was, it's something, it's interesting with the mental health thing that um, one that, back then at least, there was something coming into question that 
the way to deal with someone having mental health issues is taking away what's helping them with their livelihood. Like that's not, that's that's probably not the best way to solve it, but it was also something that they thought might work at the time. Um, yeah, yeah, but they were fundamentally wrong. I mean, oh, for sure. the reality yeah. is a lot of, lot of challenges with mental health start with financial stress. Yes. So if you take away their income or their ability to earn income, all you've done is sunk them into a dark hole they're never going to get out of. That's yeah. just wrong, fundamentally wrong. And that was the problem of the era. Um, people didn't know, they didn't understand. And you know, I, I got the feeling myself, they actually didn't care. And, and that's what changed. Today we do care. So. Yeah, and it's interesting too, something you said. I, I, I'm 24 and so I, I finished high school 2015 and a lot of my high school life, there was a big emphasis on mental health. There was always a counsellor nearby. They always sort of prioritised that, especially in the HSC. If you're going into the HSC and you're stressing out, please go talk to someone. We have the facilities available. Over the last five, six years, I've noticed my father's generation, he's in his late 50s, they're Thank becoming more aware. <laughs> they're becoming more aware of the, uh, the mental health thing. Like my dad never been a mental health guy, never even talked about mental health. And he has that conversation now. And it's, it's good to know that people, it, it, it was just something that always felt very generational. It always felt like a very high generational gap where it was in your feelings and people didn't want to talk about it, but younger people didn't care. So it's good to hear that it's changed a little bit. And I've seen that too. It's changed a lot. It's yeah. changed a lot. And look, I'm your dad's vintage, right? So, All right. So, <laughs> I'm in my late fifties. Um, and it's exactly the case because yeah. you were brought up in an era where it was suck it up, big fella, you know, take a cup of concrete and toughen up. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Move on, get over yourself, you know, you're, you're being this, that or whatever. Um, and uh, nobody did care, to be honest with you. It was, it was treated as a, a personal failure more so than something that, that an illness that needs to be uh, assisted and worked with. So yeah. uh, I'm very glad that it's changed. So. Okay. Yeah. Well, next thing we're going to talk about, Peter, was sort of the whole format of the show. So I'm, I'm just trying to talk to as many people as possible to learn from the advice they would give themselves if they could go back. Because I'm sure the twenty, the person you were at twenty four, is very different to the person you are now. What 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 advice would you give that person if you could go back and see that, Peter? Yeah, uh, it's it's interesting because what you said, right? I was right up until <clears throat> excuse me, I turned thirty. I guess I, I did most of my growing through that period, um, and I made lots and lots of stupid mistakes through that uh, period of time, and I made plenty more afterwards as well. Um, <laughs> But, um, you know, if I could go back to that time, uh, you know, the, the lessons to be learned or the, the things I tell myself is, is don't be afraid of the journey. The journey isn't a straight road that you travel on. And I actually do talk about this still today when I do presentations around the country to uh, our industry. And, um, you know, when I was in high school, so I'll go back to the late 70s uh, or mid 70s, I should say. Um, I could fly planes before I could drive a car, right? And I always planned to be a commercial pilot. That was my dream, and I was, I was flying. My dad would drive me and my best mate out to Bankstown Airport, or out to Mulpera, and we'd go flying for a few hours, and uh, then dad would drive us back home again. And um, the guy I was learning with, he became a commercial pilot. Um, in actual fact, uh, he was flying the A380s with Emirates out of Dubai, 
uh, and retired about four years ago. Uh, and I'm still working, so maybe he got it right. Um, <laughs> something he did right. He did something yeah. right in that process. But, yeah. <laughs> but that journey isn't isn't a straight line, and, and throws curveballs at you all the time. So the thing, you know, I would have tried to get myself to understand is don't be afraid of where that journey takes you, uh, and it's going to take you to some really tricky places and, and sometimes in dark places. Uh, but if you can stay true to yourself and let it take its course then you in your latter years can look back and say well everything i experienced has led me to this point in time today which enables me to do what i do and, and look we spoke earlier about the order of australia pcam um, when i look at my journey through my life i would never have gotten an am uh, let alone an oam um, for, for for just being you know a bank clerk which is where I started at back in the 70s mm. um, when I uh, couldn't continue on with my pilot's license. So, you know, it's uh, the journey is all important and to let it take its course and not be scared of it, um, it can take some really weird changes and loops on you on the way through that you sort of go, oh my God, what, you know, this is disastrous. This, this is going to bury me forever or it's not going to achieve anything like I want to achieve or what it may be or, um, you know, it, it's just one of those things to, to follow uh, whilst keeping focused on what you're trying to achieve as a person. Um, and that's not necessarily a focus on career, rather a focus on self. Um, and uh, you know, that those that, are, that I've seen that are most successful are those that are doing things that they passionately want to do. And when, they passionately, when somebody passionately wants to do something, they do become very successful at it. But whatever success means, and success isn't always about money. Um, mm. uh, you know, quite often that comes along. But it's, it's that if that's the driver, forget it. You know, um, you may make a lot of money. It doesn't mean that you know, you'll you'll have a fulfilled journey as such. Um, but doing that and, and just being honest and true to yourself. You know, and uh, uh, like I said, I always wanted to be a pilot and thought that was my journey, and um, that stopped maybe because I had to have a, a major piece of surgery on my back that in 1980 had an 80% chance, sorry, 70% chance of me being in a wheelchair. Um, mm. Obviously that didn't happen, but mm. the, uh, the recuperation period and rehabilitation period after that surgery was, was so long that I never got back to flying again and wound up in the banking system. So uh, I quite often say, and uh, you may want to believe this depends on your sensitivities. But oh, I don't out. mind. Oh, okay. It's not yeah. a perfect journey. Yeah. Sometimes there's some crap that gets thrown at you. Um, and it takes you off on another path. But when you get down the uh, down the track and look back on the path of that journey, you say, oh, well, that, that will happen for a very good reason. And it got me to being where I am today for whatever that reason was. And that's the mm. journey it took. So I guess that's what I'd, I would like to say back to myself back then, because I was not confident. Um, I hated public speaking. Um, I hated being out in front of groups. And um, although in some respects, you know, I think it, yeah, through that year, I was close. I was, and I was in the early era of my martial arts days. I used to train and then teach martial arts seven days a week. Um, you sort of, uh, I, I guess that gave me a bit of confidence as well. But being 24, I was very naive, uh, made lots of mistakes. And, uh, um, but they are all a part of that journey. So I don't uh, begrudge any of it. Okay. Yeah. Something you said too about the, the piloting thing and the, the back surgery. It's interesting that often the thing you want the least at the time to happen, which is 
this life's goal that you've had that you've always wanted to do it sort of gets taken away from you but you find it might have been the best thing that ever happened uh yeah most certainly um yeah and i can say that with confidence today uh, because if i stayed on the career path that i had in my mind um one i wouldn't be doing what i do today uh, i couldn't see why anyone would bother giving me an order of australia um, I wouldn't be able to speak to so many different people that I do around the country on a, a daily and weekly basis. Um, I couldn't do what I do with government um, and regulators, for example, either. So yeah, it, it is at the time it was devastating. Um, you know, I couldn't stand or sit for six months. Um, I had to lie flat basically for, for the vast majority of the time. Um, my dad took um, a long service leave to, to look after me at home. And uh, yeah, it, it was a, it was one of those things at times. Uh, in that moment, you go, this is just crap. And I could still today remember trying to learn to walk again after those six months, and walk, walking out the back door at home onto a was a little concrete path, and going off the concrete path onto the grass and feeling like I was going to fall over. Um, I, and although um, it'd be very arrogant of me to, to give it a, a direct comparison, but um, you know, people who have really major major accidents and you see them trying to learn to walk again i have a degree of compassion for what they go through because in my little minor sphere it was extraordinarily difficult and you say well this is just disastrous and what am i going to do yeah i i i don't uh i don't envy that at all it sounds like a really challenging thing that i don't know i'd be able to make through mentally for sure sounds really hard yeah it was but but look a lot of things too i mean I said, you know, shit happens. Life isn't all cruisy. It's a part of your journey, and, and you've got to, you still have to take that deep breath. Um, and I, I'm reluctant to use the terminology. I always said toughen up, but take that deep breath and find a way through it, um, sure. mentally and physically. Mm. And um, you know, because there's always going to be those challenges. I mean, this time last year, close enough, within a month. I went through major cancer surgery that split my face open from the center of my forehead down to the corner of my mouth and basically had to remove cancer from all the face and then I had to go back for more surgery through here and what this, the scar is on top of the head um, just six weeks ago. Um, these things happen, but you've got to learn just to take them in your stride and keep moving forward. So the last thing you want to do is to stop. Uh, it's, I, I liken it to driving in traffic. Yeah, when you're driving in really heavy traffic, so long as you're moving forward, even if it's slowly, you're still moving forward. Once you stop, you know you're going to be there forever. This is not going to be a good deal. <laughs> yeah. Same in yeah. life. Same in life. Yeah. If you stop, that's when you've got a problem. Things are not going to go well. So long as you can keep moving forward, even if it's slow, but taking those gentle steps forward, things will eventually improve and come good. I, I wondered too, how much... You were talking before about the charity that you started and the corporate stuff you'll do to, to raise money for that charity, for the support network. So helping people who have children with special needs, helping the parents with helping provide a bit of support for them. How integral was the support networks for yourself then? For, for all the challenges you've been through, having your father there, obviously that's a big, that's a huge commitment from a father to take a, a year away. And, and having that issue with your back and then the cancer last year, having your family around you, I'm sure, was just a big part of the success. Yeah, so in, in my earlier years, I actually had no network. 
Um, mm. I was very much on my own by my dad um, and my mum. I mean, my mum was always, always wonderful. And right. She passed away in the heat of COVID last year, but she made it to 96. So yeah, I should be so lucky. Uh, that's that's a good run. About years ago. Yeah, it was a good innings. Yeah. Um, so they, I guess, in that era were my support network. Um, more recently, um, I guess in industry is my support group. I mean, it, it's actually, I, I've always spoken about when I talk about industry and FBAA, and, and I really don't play brand. Um, for me, this is my life's journey, and it's all about the industry. It's not about the brand as such. Uh, that's a part of it that comes along with the journey. But the industry, uh, when I went through the surgery last year and again this year, were just absolutely magnificent. They're wonderful, wonderful things. And we've um, we've also uh, taken on um, support of Are You OK Day since 2016, which is a mental health conversation. Yeah. And through the groups that we get together, we start off with like, I think it was about 50 people at the first one. We're now up to about four or 500 people that attend. But the, the bonding that that brings from within the industry, um, the, and the amount of people now that reach out to me on a regular basis to ask me how I'm going, hey, because I, I'm happy to to put myself out there and to say, well, you know, I, I do suffer from um, severe anxieties, although I, I've learned to get it under control. Um, a lot of people um, look at me and sort of sort of go, how does that happen? You're always up there. I can speak to a thousand people. I can speak to fifty people, hundreds. It doesn't matter, but. Um, are things that we all suffer with somewhere and, and I think it's important that people don't feel that this is uh, these are things that only impact the limited few it actually probably impacts the vast majority when you look at the Australian data around mental health you know the data says that in somebody in a, in a person's lifetime one out of two people will suffer um, from severe mental illness in their lifetime uh, so that's that's half the population um, we know that in Australia there are eight suicides a day from people suffering from mental illness. That's eight suicides every day in Australia. People are committing suicide from mental illness and six of those eight are men. So guys, we've got to have a, a much closer conversation and look after one another mm. because it's taking lives. And this is why that conversation is so important around mental health, um, that we, we do stay close, that we do connect with one another because when the journey gets dark is the way I describe it. So when that mental health journey gets dark, you can wind up in a black hole you'll never get out of. It'll mm. suck you in and it will just rip you apart and that will be the end of the journey. Yeah. Um, and so the conversation is all about not going there in the first place or trying not to go there in the first place and uh, to be able to help one another. And for people to feel like um, they have friends that understand it, it's why we set up the charity. I mean. Parents with um, special needs kids generally don't talk to other people because they don't believe people understand it. And if you live it, um, you sort of get why they think that way because it's a, it's so um, entrapping as such. It, it catches you. It involves every minute of it, every day. Yeah. Um, there are no school holidays. There are no breaks. And with Charlie, who's here with this with special needs, you know, um, she's up early in the morning and wants to go outside in the middle of winter uh, to go and play in the water. They say, yeah, it's kind of too cold. It's going to get you sick. But she doesn't understand and she doesn't care. So she goes out and starts jumping and playing in water. And is like, oh, here we go. Um, and she can't control her, um, her uh, emotions. So she gets violent and angry very, very quickly. <clears throat> so it's, uh, we, we spent, well, my wife, God bless her. She's, she's a great uh, 
she's a great tradie. Um, mm. Was fixing glass sliding doors on the weekend that she'd broken, and yeah. you know, there's a constant journey like that that is, is really relentless, and that's where the parents' health suffers badly, <clears throat> and most things don't cater for. Um, so yeah, we, we took it on. You know, when we started doing um, raisings, donation raisings through corporates, I always said that. The, my wife and I fund this personally, so it's not funded by donations. We okay, pay right. for it ourselves. Um, the donations are purely there to help parents who have um, a, a special circumstances that they financially can't get through. Because we mentioned earlier that you know uh, financial stresses are one of the the big intros into mental yeah. health issues. Yeah. And the same with parents, especially these kids. The financial pressures, if they can't afford to pay a, a, a phone bill or a rates or mortgage payments we we helped out a couple in um in uh, south australia earlier this year who um, needed quite a fair bit of money to secure a property so their kids weren't a flight risk so they had no fencing on it It was very very expensive to do and the property needed to be leveled out because it was a uh, it was a hazard to the kids running around so uh, we um we gave them 25 grand to to get that done um because we know it's like this, the property I'm in here is completely fenced off because Charlotte's a flight risk. Um, and even being fenced off as it is, um, she's now 16, can find the keys and open the gate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah <laughs> challenging times. I mean, and, you know, you just, my, my view is anyhow, if we do a little something to help along, people along the way, then, then that's a good thing. Um, sure. It makes their lives easier. Um, and whether it's just a conversation, whether it's a, you know, a few shekels and you know, dollars along the way somewhere to help them out, if it helps, takes a bit of stress out of their lives, which is why we have the conversation with the industry, try and take stress out of our lives, um, then we make it such a more enjoyable journey for everybody uh, for rather sure. than one that gets dark and destroying. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I wanted to ask a question that's sort of more centric to brokers. Um, I'm only new to broking, like I'm still a trainee broker um, under my dad's business and I've sort of started to feel like, um, I feel like brokers aren't exactly uh, as much of a community as they could be. I feel like there's a lot of competitiveness from my experience and I'm still very new so that might be just my experience but I, something I like about the associations and the support network of that is this idea of like a rising tide uh, lifts all ships. If we all try and help each other, we're all going to succeed instead of the crabs in a bucket mentality. I just wondered if yeah. that's something that you've experienced in your years in, in finance. Yeah, most certainly. And it's why, you know, I, I always talk about the industry as a family. Um, mm. And everywhere I go, I always refer to a family. If you look at my social media posts, I refer to family. Mm. Um, because it needs, we, we need to look at things that way. Because look, at the end of the day, there's a mixture of both. Um, brokers are highly competitive against one another because they're fighting for business. There's 19,600 plus brokers in Australia, regardless of the level of volume they write. There's a lot of plays in there. It's no more so on a percentage weighting of population than it is in any other country. So it's not like we're over-dominated by it, but there's a lot of people there and they're, they're competing for business. So that is always a part of it but you also need to step away from it and again i think this is where uh, from my point of view the association is to take the leaders we we bring back family and community back to to the industry um uh like i said it's why i always talk about family it's why i um 
uh, you know, um, we, we do a whole host of different activities for it. I'm, I'm actually, for those that ride motorcycles, I'm starting up a, an industry motorcycle riders group this year um, so that people who have that as a, a common interest can get together around the country and uh, just go for a ride somewhere during the day. Um, once a year, we'll do a, a big weekend or somewhere. Um, but it, it's all about that community, that family, uh, to be able to get together and, and, and share like-minded experiences and interests rather than just being competitors in the, in the broking world. And a lot of aggregators are trying to go that way as well. Um, not everyone, but a lot of aggregators now talk about their family and, and they're doing a lot more in the mental health space. Um, and they're trying to, they do a conference you know, once a year, which is okay, but that's probably too far out. Um, but that, 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 that is an early evolving journey with aggregators. Some of them are a lot further down the road than others. But yeah. I, I can sort of see why you would say that, because in some cases that would be very much the, the, the reality. But in other cases, they, they certainly are on the journey. And, and I will always, so long as my butt sits in the chair anyhow, um, continue on that conversation, that journey. And continually we are looking for more ways to expand that conversation and involve people as family in that journey. So I said, so we're doing the, the motorcycle riders group. That'll kick off this year. Um, you know, in past years, we, we, you know, I mentioned Are You OK Day? We also do International Men's Day, International Women's Day their mental health conversations. Uh, we have um, social events throughout the year as well as um, PD days, which are, are probably not 50% weighted, uh, is networking, so people come together. Uh, it's why we stepped straight into face-to-face -face as early as we could as we came out of COVID, because it's that face-to-face, -face, that community, that family, that bonding when people get together. Um, you can't, you can't emphasise enough the importance of that in, with people. Um, yeah, it's all very good to do things digitally and, and, and these things provide great mechanisms for, for what we're doing but there, there has to be a balance in it because we're human beings and we, we need sure. that social engagement 100% uh, sort of the last thing we could we wanted I wanted to cover with you it's more taking on the idea of investing because um, a quick caveat I was actually living in Canada up until COVID hit I was a tour guide over in Canada so uh, yeah, if, if you want a media person for your Canadian, the, the Canada mortgage broking uh, event, I'll, I'll be a Huckleberry. I'll go over there. I know Vancouver quite well. So if it's there, we'll be, we'll be yeah. sweet. But um, yeah. I, I, love, um, I love Vancouver. I've, I've been there city. three times. Yeah, I've been yeah, there okay. three times with the IVF and spoke at conferences in Vancouver. All right. and, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, as I, well as over in Halifax. All oh, right. Okay. I've never been able to go over that way. I um I didn't get to travel too much. I I loved Vancouver too much to leave. I did go. I went to Banff too. Banff was amazing. Oh, Swam in Lake Louise. That was pretty cool. Um, now I'm jealous. What we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was pretty. It was so cold, Peter. Oh my goodness. I um, yeah. I, I was in Canada for a year and a half until COVID hit. It was great though. Yeah. It was a lovely place. Um, last thing I was going to cover. So yeah, when, when I came back from Canada, I had no money because I was working in a backpackers hostel. I was living in the hostel. I was having an amazing time, but money wasn't really my priority. And COVID hit and I sort of realized I had to put finances a little further to the forefront. It didn't mean I had to be frugal and not spend any money and not live my life, but it just meant I needed to look into investing. And I just wondered like, what, what was something that made you want to invest as a younger person if you did? And, and what, 
what would you say to other young people who aren't sure about investing, not to what to invest in or how to invest, just what would be the reasons for investing? Oh, I guess, you know, for investing in anything is about planning for your future. So whether it be financial investment or career investment, um, it's all about investing for your future. So if you don't invest into anything, you really don't have any future that you're planning on as such. So I think it gives focus and direction. So whether, you know, say if it's financial investment, property investment, you, you, you're doing things with a future plan. Um, same with business. Uh, when you invest into a business, it's always a future plan. And um, that's why we talk a lot through what we do is make sure you've got your business plans in order and that you review it and so on. Uh, so it's all about that forward-looking future. So that it gives you direction and purpose in what you're doing. Right. Was there anything else you wanted to cover, Peter, before we got out of here? Like I said, the only other thing is um, uh, that we kicked off last year with what we call a confidential counselling program, CCP, which has a 1-800 number um, that's, and, and details on the FBAA's website that if, if brokers are having any struggles with mental health or even financial health or financial stresses, um, they can ring this hotline at no cost. Uh, there's four free counselling sessions, all funded by Suncorp Bank um, and professional counselling provided by Assured. Uh, and it, we, we call it the CCP Confidential Counseling Program because we get none of us get data. Suncorp doesn't get data. We don't get data. The only thing Suncorp gets is a tally of how many people use the system so they can pay the bill. Um, yeah, okay. And uh, but it, it's free at the moment. It's only open to or it's open to FBAA members and their families. Um, the the objective is to take that to the whole industry, but it's sort of like it's beta testing mode. Mm. But the, that CCP that Confidential Counseling Program uh, is there to help. The industry, uh, initially FBAA and their, their families, uh, with any challenges they're having with mental health. So we, we strongly encourage people to use it. Okay, awesome. And and if, if people want to get in touch with you or follow what you're doing week to week on yep. social media, how would they find you? Best place to find me is on LinkedIn. I don't do I do uh, Facebook. I use for the grandkids. That's how mm. old I am. Uh, <laughs> Instagram. Instagram's a little bit more for what I was doing on my motorcycle journey, but uh, uh, LinkedIn is the primary place to get me. Um, and people always were welcome to email me. Uh, details are on my website, but it's a simple one. It's just py.fbaa.com.au. Um, it's uh, getting me by phone's the hardest thing. It tends to run hot, and the, the days is when we're traveling along. Uh, but uh, yeah, people are more than welcome to reach out to me. LinkedIn is the best platform to get me through uh, or get me on as far as, uh, you know, what things are happening and uh, what conversations I'm having. And uh, stay tuned for the motorcycle journey for those that, yeah, for uh, sure. that are in motorbikes. Yeah, I used to ride motorcycles down in Victoria. I, I might get mine back um, in the next year or so, but it's so cold down here. Like, I'd rather just yeah. drive. <laughs> <laughs> it's too yeah. cold. But um, that's right. Yeah. That's right. You don't have to ride all the time. When I was a kid, I rode all. It was my primary means of transport. I would never do that again. I'm too old for that. Yeah. Um, it's like today. It's slightly cooler, beautiful blue skies. It's not raining. I'm not going to ride in the rain. Um, mm. I'm not going on dirt. So you know, I have a a, a big Indian uh, motorcycle. So it, it's awesome. not conducive for riding on the dirt. So it's, oh, it's sure. a tour and, and cruise yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. I had a I had a Honda 125 cc and my friend called it oh. the whipper snipper. 
he, he always knew if I was visiting because he thought a whippersnipper was going out the front. It was embarrassing, but it was it was a great little everyday, you know, around the city sort of thing. Uh, Honda 125s are a great little bike. Uh, when yeah. I was a kid, a mate of mine used to ride one. I was riding a, uh, a Yamaha RD 250 in those days, which was a little two-stroke black machine that uh, winded out. It uh, <laughs> didn't get up and go, but... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you again for the time. I really appreciate it. This was a great conversation. Thanks, Damien. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much yeah. for having us.